Hello, everyone, and welcome to B-Sides, where we discuss everything that doesn't fit in a sermon. This episode is following our final message in Samuel, entitled The Kingdom of the Megalomaniac, in which we see David and his son Absalom. Now, after teaching that message, roughly an hour long, uh, looking back through it, I realized I don't really have much more to add. Other than, please, if you haven't read yet, read A Tale of Three Kings. It is so impactful. Um, but other than that, what I decided is that we will now address the first of some of the questions that have come in. And yes, just one question this episode, because this one was loaded, and it comes in four parts. Now, a brief warning... If this question does not at all interest you, and it's nothing you've ever wondered or don't even care to know about, then no harm, no foul. You don't have to keep listening. This is some deep Bible study stuff. Uh, This is stuff that I do when I teach the Gospels in a Bible college level course, which I've done a few times. And this is uh, I do this to a lesser degree when I teach the Gospels at Lake Arrowhead Christian School for high school students. So, I love talking about the Gospels, and I'm really excited to get into this question, because the person who asked this question is thinking very deeply, as you can hear in these questions. So, with no further delay, let me read you the four parts of this question about the Gospels. Part 1. How do we view the Gospels? We have four Gospels, four tellings of Jesus' story. So how do we view the four as a whole? Part two. How do the personalities of the writers impact the facts? In other words, does the humanness of each writer interfere to an extent? Part three. How do the themes of the authors impact what is included and how it is ordered? And part four, are the words of Jesus and others what different people best remember or how the author felt the story should best be portrayed or is it all strictly literal? So the words we find in the Gospels, is this uh, their best recollection of what happened or is it the author putting things the way he wants to? Or is it a strict, literal account? Very good questions indeed. And so without any further delay, let us launch into the first of these questions. Question part one. How do we view the Gospels? So we have four Gospels, which are all telling the story of Jesus. I recall early in my Bible reading days, um, it just seems sort of repetitive to me. And really, what differentiated one gospel from another was simply, this one includes this parable, the others don't. Or, I like the way this gospel tells a story, he brings in this detail that the others don't. And that was it. It was all pretty, it all felt pretty repetitive. Here we go again, the story of Jesus. And then, of course, John was the most refreshing because John had a completely different approach to everything, a different order. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke 
almost have things in the exact same order, told very similarly, and one wonders, why do we have four? And that's been a question that has been uh, asked for thousands of years since we've had the Gospels. In fact, there was even a time in AD 170, so very early in church history, AD 170, Church Father Tatian created what was called the Diatessaron. Now, the Diatessaron means through four. And what this was, was his compilation of the four Gospels into one Gospel account. So there were very early on attempts to compile the story of Jesus into just one gospel. But as you can see in your Bible, uh, the four have won out. Time after time, we've kept coming back to the four. And this is a very good thing. Because each of the four writers had very specific aims in mind. And though some of the Gospels sound very similar, a reason for which we'll get into in a later question, although they sound very similar, the subtle differences speak volumes. Now, the fact that we have four. um, We have the order of the four in our Bibles as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Historically, the order of their publication was probably Mark, Matthew and Luke coming out about the same time, and then John being last. There's another way to order them, and that is Matthew, Mark, John, and Luke, which to me makes a lot of sense. Uh, and this is, in a way, this is uh, the way... Church history has done their readings through scripture. You have one year where you read Matthew, a second year where you read Mark, a third year where you read Luke. So there's a three-year reading cycle, and these three Gospels take the three-year reading cycle. John is inserted during uh, the Lenten season for Holy Week and Easter and Good Friday. And that order also makes sense, because you have um, Luke at the end, where Acts, which is actually part of the work of Luke, gets to be together. Now, Acts and Luke in our Bibles are two different books only because that's the way the manuscripts came to us. Only because each of these books fulfill the longest length of a typical scroll. So Luke and Acts, had scrolls been long enough, would have been one book. But we have them in two because they appear on two different scrolls because of size. So really, Luke and Acts should always be read together in one seamless flow. One scholar, his name is Alexander Shia, has proposed a very, very interesting view in regards to the reason we have four Gospels. And this is something that I had been praying about for a long time when I was reading the Gospels. And he pieced some things together for me that just blew my mind in such a good way. Just made me say, wow, I love God's word. And that is simply this, that the four Gospels represent stages of growth. Now, Alexander Shia's work may or may not be accurate. You may or may not agree with it. I may or may not agree with it. But what I loved was he asked the question that I had for years been wondering. Maybe there's a progression to these four Gospels. 
Now, what that progression exactly is, we may never know, but it may be helpful to consider them in this way. And so what I'm about to share follows loosely along Alexander Shia's work. So first we have Matthew. Matthew is inviting us on an adventure. Second, we have Mark. Mark is teaching us how to die. Third, we have John. John teaches us how to come back to life. And fourth, we have Luke, who sends us off on the road of service and out into the world. In a way, these four Gospels, uh, to put in another illustration, are Matthew is fall, Mark is winter, John is spring, and Luke is summer. And so what Matthew's doing is Matthew's writing to a group of people, community in Antioch, right after the temple has been destroyed. And they are in despair. The Jewish community in Antioch, where most of the Jews would have gone from Jerusalem up north to Antioch, they're in despair. What do we do? Every way we knew about relating to God has completely changed. And Matthew's writing to this community to show them, look, all that's happened is the way you've related to God has been relocated from the temple building and that system to the body of Jesus the Christ. And Matthew shows them this. Matthew shows them that Jesus is the new temple. Matthew calls them onto this adventure of change by beginning his gospel much like the Exodus story, where Jesus is portrayed as a brand new Moses leading people to a new way of living. Looked at that way, Matthew is addressing all of us in our seasons of change, in our seasons of fall, in these calls to adventure where we're not sure if we should step out of the boat like Peter does in Matthew 17. Or we're not sure if we should divorce Mary, who appears to have been unfaithful, or to forego tradition and hold on to her, as Joseph has to face at the beginning of the gospel. Notice also that Matthew has a lot of teachings from Jesus about morals and character. We have the Sermon on the Mount because we are being called into a new way of life. So Matthew addresses these questions, these seasons of change, which then gives way to Mark in which we go through seasons of hardship. It's as if Matthew says, the Lord is my shepherd, let's follow him. But then Mark takes us to the valley of the shadow of death. And Mark has a huge emphasis on the cross of Jesus. Mark has three episodes in which Jesus specifically pulls his disciples aside and says, look, we're on our way to Jerusalem. I'm going to die And this is how you follow in my steps. Take up your cross, receive a child because the last shall be first. And don't ask me for positions of power, James and John. It's not for me to give, but rather don't be like the Gentiles who lord it over themselves, but rather be like a servant for the son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark also specifies what happens during Holy Week. He's the only gospel that tells us what happens on Sunday when Jesus enters, Monday when he cleanses the temple, Tuesday when he's tried, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, all the way to Sunday. He gives us these time signatures. Mark shows us much of the death. And this is what we are invited to in Mark. So Matthew says, let's change, let's go on an adventure. Mark says, 
It may be tough, but you are in the footsteps of Jesus, which then takes us to John. John's gospel emphasizes the garden, and it begins much like Genesis 1-1 within the beginning, and it talks about creation, and then it ends in a garden, just like the Garden of Eden, when Jesus comes out of the tomb in a garden. And there we see the season of friendship and union and love, and we, we meet the I am in Jesus, who says, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the way, the truth, the life, I am the resurrection, the life. All these I am statements of Jesus, there we're refreshed. After we've gone through our death and transformation, we are resurrected into new creatures, into new beings. This is where we sit in the garden and let Jesus wash our feet, as happens in John 13. And then Luke. Luke sends us out on the road of service. And we see in Luke an emphasis on the least, the last, the lost. Jesus serving the marginalized, the outsider, the excluded. And then, of course, the book of Acts takes the followers of Jesus mimicking his actions as they take the gospel, um, not only to Israel, but then to the Gentiles and to the ends of the world. And so we have this pattern of growth. Where we are where we are now, but in Matthew, we're called to an adventure. In Mark, we're beginning to lose our old ways. In John, we're resurrected to a new way of life. And then in Luke, we are sent off to serve. We're called out. We die. We're raised. We serve. Fall, winter, spring, the summer of service. And uh, to put this four-step process in yet another analogy. You can think of um, the way that they would have used grapes then. Matthew's like the collection of the grapes. Mark is the crushing of the grapes to get the juice. John is when the grapes are fermented in, uh, and they're transformed into something new. And then Luke is when these grapes, now made wine, is poured out and served, much like at a Last Supper meal much like the wedding feast envisioned by the prophets that will come at the end of time. So I'm trying to go over this quickly. So I hope that's helpful to see uh, that these four gospels could be read as a, as a journey of progress and growth. And look, you may be at one of these seasons right now in your life. You may be in all of them at some time this year. We go through these cyclically where we're called out, we're challenged and we struggle. Then we find rest and restoration. And then we find ourselves able to serve in a way we never were before. And then it starts all over a new adventure, a new death, a new resurrection, a new service over and over and over. So that is perhaps one reason, one very important and useful reason that we have four gospels. And may that give you a new way to read each of the four and to find each one serving a unique purpose. Part two of the question. How much do the personalities of the writers impact the facts? Short answer. Their personalities flavored the content but did not drive the content because the writers were writing to communities with their own needs. I mentioned Matthew writing maybe to Antioch and to people who were in this limbo between the old Jewish ways and the new Christian ways. Um, Mark writing to 
those persecuted in Rome during the persecutions of Nero. That's why he emphasizes the death and sufferings of Jesus to show that community that they are following in his steps. John, probably writing in Ephesus and trying to show that there is one garden for a multi-ethnic people in, in a huge cosmopolitan city like Ephesus. Um, he may, uh, one of the theories too is that, uh, because he's in Ephesus, uh, he may have the most Paul influence in his gospel of all of them. Uh, maybe alongside Luke as well. And then Luke, Luke seems to be writing to Theophilus. Whether Theophilus is commissioning the work or he's writing directly to him, we don't know. But Luke definitely has an emphasis on uh, showing us the road to service and how to include the least, the last, and the lost. So with that said, um, their personalities are not driving this as much as it is the needs of the early Christian communities. Um, now, it's a good question because one of the flaws I think we have is we don't give the human writers enough. We don't give them enough consideration when we look at scripture. And that's because we rightly believe that scripture is inspired by God. It is the word of God to humanity. And I agree with that. But we too quickly forget that God did not dictate the words through human robots, that God did not etch the words onto paper and then hand it to us, but that God chose instead to use human beings with their personalities, with their experiences, with their insights, with their abilities. So that creates a unique blend of God giving a vision and then the authors finding words to put it down. So yes, it is the word of God to man, but we also see man doing his best to put God's word into human words. And that makes this really fun when you begin to look at it this way, because now we begin to see different things and we begin to ask why. Why is Mark putting it like this? Which, by the way, it is believed that Mark was writing alongside Peter. So in a sense, we have Peter's gospel. And, and what's also unique in this is that we're seeing the word of God, which of course John tells us the word became flesh, Jesus. Um, we're seeing the word of God like Jesus, an incarnation of the spirit of God himself, so that you have divinity and humanity working together as one to produce the message of God. So all that to say is that while the Bible is the word of God, it is a fallacy to see it as one-sidedly God. He used humans and used their abilities. And so we have, as much of life, the great mixture of God working with humans. We have, we're holding, we hold the Bible, a symbol of Jesus himself, God and man mixed perfectly together in one without the Godhead being diminished whatsoever. Please do not be afraid of ever thinking that there, that God is using humans. We cannot diminish who God is, but he can increase who we are. And that's what the gospel is all about, is it's taking dust and making it to something, as Psalm 8 says, a breath shy of divinity. We are not just merely creation. We are a step above the creation. Yet we're not quite God. We're a step short. 
We're there in between the mixture of God and creation meeting together. We are the priests of God to creation and creation's representative to God. And that's what Jesus came to be as well. And he is making us like him. So, uh, a long answer to my short answer. Their personalities probably didn't influence the facts much, but their personalities do flavor each gospel quite extraordinarily. Question part three. How do the themes of the authors impact what is included and how it is ordered? Okay, so this question assumes that there are themes in each gospel, and that is precisely correct, as we've already mentioned some of them. But do these themes um, impact what is written in the gospels? And the answer is yes. Now, yes does not mean that they altered the record of Jesus just to fit what they want to say. Rather, it means they use events or word events around their theme. It may be best to understand how the Gospels came about. So, there's four steps I want to take you through about how the Gospels came about. The first step is quite obvious. It's the fact that these things happened. We can call it historical events. The historical events happened. The life, works, and words of Jesus himself. So those happened somewhere in history. But then they had to be transmitted somehow from the actual events and those who saw them to those who didn't see them. So the second step is that there was an oral tradition and that the earliest church, remember, they didn't have the New Testament. The gospels weren't written the day after Jesus rose from the dead or even while he was living. There was a gap that the early church continued to practice the Old Testament. Uh, and they, they began, they, they carried on what happened in the life of Jesus through what we call the oral tradition, which simply means that they told stories about Jesus passed down from disciple to disciple. Now, some people get sketched out by this and think, wait, the first records of Jesus were passed down mouth to mouth? Story to story? Orally? Wouldn't that leave room for a lot of error? And the answer is resoundingly, no, no. See, we're a society that relies heavily on written documentation and recorded information now with television and all this. And you're listening to this as a recording. It captures things precisely. But way back in the time, the primary form of entertaining and sharing life with one another was telling stories. They were master storytellers. And in a world where you didn't have books in your pocket, on your phone, on your Kindle, or even a wealth, a large library on a bookshelf, in a world where you didn't have information collected like that, you had to learn to retain it in your mind. So they were able to listen to oral tellings very well and categorize those things in their minds and retain them. There's an excellent lecture by Craig S. Keener about the way oral societies worked and the amazing precision in which they could recall information. 
There were some who could recite an entire auction, the item given off, the name of the person who bought it, and for how much they could recall it from memory by just being there once and could rehearse it backward. Dr. Denny Milburn, who has been a guest on this podcast a few times, he actually has done some study on uh, these tricks where you can train the mind to retain things in a much uh, better way with easier recall. The oral tradition was legitimate and people retained what they saw and what they heard in ways that we just simply aren't trained to because we don't have to. But beyond that is to consider that the oral tradition was not like the game telephone or like gossip where you whisper something to one person, they tell it to another person, they tell it to another person. And before you know it, the fish that was three inches has become three feet. That's not how it worked back then. You would tell the story in a community setting. So the difference is when you're whispering from one person to another, that's called chain transmission. But when you're telling it to a community, like in a church setting, that's called net transmission. And the idea of net transmission is that you have multiple people hearing the account at once. So when that account is retold within the church and from the church to other churches, there is a large community that keeps the story in check and they can tell when it gets off and when it stays on. Anyways, I'm probably going too far into this. So first, we have the historical events themselves. Second, the events are passed down orally through storytelling. Third, at some point, and we don't know when, these oral traditions were written down. It may have been immediately, or it may have been a few years later as they saw the church beginning to grow and realized this thing is for real. Um, we don't know when, but it seems apparent that things were written down. And finally, and I'll come back to this third point, by the way. And finally, fourth, then the Gospels themselves were compiled, written, and edited, and published. So the historical events, then passed down orally through stories, eventually written down, and then finally compiled into the Gospels that we hold in our Bibles. Okay, a word now on steps three and four, the written sources and the Gospels themselves. Are they different? Are they not the same? It would seem that there are two separate steps for this reason. And I find this absolutely amazing. The Gospel of Mark has 661 verses. 661. Five hundred of them reappear nearly verbatim in the Gospel of Matthew. Did you hear that? Of Mark's 661 verses, 500 reappear in Matthew. That's roughly five-sixths of Mark's gospel is reproduced in Matthew's gospel. Friends, that's one reason why Matthew's gospel is nearly twice the size as Mark's. And catch this. Of Mark's 661 verses, 350 reappear in Luke's gospel. So, what's going on there? It suggests that Matthew and Luke borrow from Mark or use a source similar to Mark's. In other words, there's the question of, okay, Matthew and Luke borrow so much from Mark's gospel 
they must have known about Mark's gospel. In other words, Mark's gospel went around the church so widely that when Matthew and Mark begin to write their gospels, they know his gospel. They may even have it in their hand while they write their gospels. And by the way, the outline, the chronological flow of events is so similar between Mark, Matthew, and Luke that it seems evidenced that Matthew and Luke are using Mark's gospel as a basic outline and then compiling more material into it. Now, that's assuming that they knew of Mark's gospel. An alternative explanation, and this one um, has absolutely no proof, is that there is a mysterious source never that has not survived history, but is one of the written sources the early church had, and scholars simply call it Q. This mysterious hypothetical document or or group of documents that had a lot of the sayings and stories of Jesus that Mark used, Matthew used, and Luke all pull from this similar source uh, known as Q. And Q, by the way, uh, is is um. It simply means source. I think from the, if I'm recalling this right, it's from the German word quell, which means source. So Q just became short for the source. Um, now that's sometimes sometimes when people hear that they think, oh my goodness, this is making scripture no longer sound inspired from God. But remember, inspiration does not mean it fell from heaven into their laps. They're using human means to get what actually happened down into record. And the whole Q source, again, is just hypothetical. We don't even know if this is true. Um, but if it did exist, we have to trust that part of inspiration is not just God passing down his word, but it's how it got passed down to the writers. So we have to trust that whatever Q was, it was part of God's inspiration plan. So it doesn't bother me one bit if this hypothetical Q document existed or not. But the plot thickens at this point. So while we said that 661 of Mark's verses uh, reappear in, 500 of them reappear in Matthew and 350 reappear in Luke, this is where the plot thickens. Matthew and Luke share 235 verses that do not appear in Mark at all. What is that about? That's where the Q theory comes much stronger into play. It's conceivable that Matthew and Luke just borrowed from Mark. Yes, of course. But when you realize that Matthew and Luke share 235 verses that Mark doesn't have in his gospel, now we begin asking, okay, Matthew and Luke were looking at the same sources, and it wasn't just Mark. They had a source that Mark didn't have. And that's where the Q theory comes in. Now, I know what some of you are saying, but, but, but wait a minute. Matthew was an eyewitness. Luke was friends with the apostle Paul. Yes, I understand all that. And that's where the parts of Matthew that are completely unique to Matthew and they don't appear in Mark or Luke come from Matthew's own eyewitness accounts. That's where Luke, who seemingly interviewed many of the earliest followers of Jesus as he goes with Paul around to all the churches around the world. That's where the content that is only in his gospel comes into play. Luke's own personal investigation. So, if you're still able to follow me here, we have this really uh, complex relationship with the gospels where Mark is the first writer, probably why he's also the shortest. 
Then Matthew and Luke write somewhere around the same time. Matthew pulling from Mark and this hypothetical source called Q and his own notes, known as Matthew's notes. (laughs) So step three, the sources lead up to the gospel Matthew. Luke also using Mark, this hypothetical Q source and Luke's own research. So he's got three sources being used. And so there you see the events happen. There's oral traditions. Some sort of records are written because it seems that at times the gospels pulled from these sources to get their material together. You might say, well, they all remembered everything the same way. That does not explain why these shared verses are nearly verbatim. Friends, it seems that they were copying from something. And again, this does not diminish inspiration at all. You have people, some who actually follow Jesus and some who are researching first-hand witnesses. You have actual people who are wanting to communicate what actually happened, but in a very professional way, which would have been normal and understood of the time. Now, the fourth step um, where the Gospels are published themselves is known the the area of study which looks into that is known as redaction criticism. And all redaction criticism does is ask the question, why did this gospel include what it did and not include what it didn't include? That's all it asks. Redaction criticism is a very interesting way to look at the gospels. So, for example, um, there's two ways of reading the gospels. One is vertical. And that's where you read one gospel from top to bottom. Say Mark. You read Mark from top to bottom all the way through without acknowledging the other three gospels. Just focusing on Mark and what he has to say. Just focusing on Matthew and what he has to say. No cross-referencing. That's not allowed. Vertical reading is just zeroing in on that single gospel. Then there's horizontal reading. So that was vertical reading. Then there's horizontal reading, where you read Mark alongside Matthew, alongside Luke, alongside John, and you're cross-comparing the different accounts. So the feeding of the 5,000 in this one, and in this one, and in this one, and in this one, and where are their differences? And so part of what redaction criticism does is it asks, okay, we need to treat each book on its own and see what this author wanted to say without the interference of the other authors. But it also then will be willing to compare and say, well, Luke said this about this account, but Mark didn't decide to add that little detail. That seems like a specific difference. Um, for example, Luke has the, um, the story of the, uh, what was it, 10 lepers, and only one that Jesus heals, and only one returns to say thank you? That's not in any other of the Gospels. So redaction criticism asks, why is that in Luke's Gospel? On one hand, it could simply be only Luke remembered that one or knew about it. But more than likely, it's because that story served Luke's purpose of leading the church on the road of service to reach out to the least, the last, and the lost. That yes, that one leper who returned to say thanks, Luke does not forget to add, that leper was a Samaritan, an outsider, someone Jews deemed unworthy of salvation. So you see what you do with this study is you now you're starting to see Luke has a message to include. 
And so, remembering the question, how do the themes of the authors impact what is included and how it is ordered? Well, there you go. It's a pretty complicated process. But I want to end this part of the question by reading to you from Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In case you think all of this is just a little too nuanced, Luke seems to refer to this process. So this is the opening verses of the Gospel of Luke. We read, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Okay, so in those four verses, we see the four steps. The historical events, Luke said, the things that have been accomplished among us. Then the oral tradition, Luke said, those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. How? The implication is that they delivered them to us orally. The written sources are seen here. He says, many have undertaken to compile a narrative. So Luke acknowledges that there are many writings about Jesus right now. Hmm. And then the step where the actual gospels themselves are formed, we read, he says, it seemed good to me also to write an orderly account for you. So one of the big differences between the written sources and the gospels themselves is that the written sources may or may not have an order to them. But the Gospels are an orderly account saying a specific message about Jesus, addressing a specific need to the church. So, I've already said enough. We'll move on to the fourth part of this question. Part four of the question. And this one's a bear. I've only read part of the question up to this point. Are the words of Jesus and others what different people best remember? Or how the author felt the story should best be portrayed? Or strictly literal? The person who asked the question then gave some examples that spawned the question. For example, details defer from gospel to gospel. And that is actually true. Um, when Jesus goes into Jericho on his way to Jerusalem, um, he heals one blind man in Mark, and he heals two blind men in Matthew, for example. Uh, in um, the resurrection accounts, sometimes there's one angel, sometimes there's two angels, and sometimes... Uh, Peter and John are at the tomb. Sometimes it's Mary and Mary. And I know, I know, I already hear some of you, you, you have reasons for that. I know that. I'm simply pointing out what's on the surface and why questions get asked, right? But, but there are, there are some details that seem to differ from gospel to gospel. Another example, some commentaries say, 
that the teachings of Jesus are compilations. You might be thinking, what does that mean? Well, it means that, for example, the Sermon on the Mount was not one sermon from start to finish, but that Matthew decided to compile a variety of Jesus' teachings at different places and different times into one sermon for the presentation to the reader to read in a nice, clean one unit. Um, that is possible. Uh, I don't know about that exact ex- example I gave you, but um, that Jesus did not teach one parable only once that he would have taught a lot of these things many times. So maybe one time he did teach the entire Sermon on the Mount like that, but maybe at another time he taught half of it or these portions of it, depending on the audience he was with. Now, I can tell you from experience as a teacher that if you're traveling around teaching, you're not telling that story just once or teaching that lesson just once. You're teaching these multiple times as you're in different locations with different people and even sometimes the same people because repetition is necessary. So Jesus did not necessarily say all these things only once as we read them in the Bible. He may have said them many times. And Matthew, rather than just repeating it over and over since we get to read it, decided to have him say it in this town rather than that town because he said it in both. But for the for the orderly account, as Luke said his gospel was, right? An orderly account, uh, our writers are deciding to compile the teachings in a certain way. So I hope that makes some sense to you. Um, a, a third example is that the Magnificant and other poetic passages, uh, that, by the way, it's, it's Mary's song when she discovers that she's going to have Jesus, uh, and other poetic passages are not word for word. In other words, did Mary literally burst out into song and prayer with that perfect poetry, or are the writers polishing something what she said? Um, that, of course, is possible as well. Now, I can already hear the American mindset saying, whoa, wait a minute, so they're changing scripture. No, it was very common back then to summarize a person's words and even to um, polish up. Because remember, no one was there with the tape recorder and said, oh, that's exactly what Mary said. It's just been passed down, uh, something of the meaning, perhaps. Um, so those are some examples, and that's why it's a, it's a good question. Um, the question goes on, though. So, and this is where the question gets really good, and it's probably where you're going as well. The question finishes like this. If it isn't all literal, in order of events and exact words, and what actually happened, how do we determine a reasonable way of interpreting the Gospels worthy of God's word? Great question. I've sort of been answering it throughout this entire episode, sprinkling it here and there. But in short... One, we never said that it isn't literal, but that needs definition. And then two, yes, um, the order of events, it, this is not a neatly packaged story of Jesus. It's sort of like scenes of the life of Jesus. And we've already said, uh, it does not mean it's not God's word. It was just determined that we did not need every single waking moment of the Son of God's life. As John himself has already told us that this is the case, he says at the end of his gospel, hey, I've only given you seven of his miracles because had I written everything he did, surely every library in the world could not hold the volumes it would take to tell you about Jesus. 
So there you go. But let's go forward with the question, okay? So remember, at the heart of this, it's being asked, uh, the words of Jesus and others, the accounts of the Gospels, um, are they recollections of what was best remembered? Or are they simply how the author felt the sh- story should be portrayed? Or is it strictly literal? Let's talk about literal. Calvary Chapel takes the word of God literally. We believe that we should read the Bible literally and take it at its face value. That's what it means. If 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 the first sense makes sense, seek no other sense, right? That's the idea, is that you're not trying to read behind everything. And that's a, that's a pretty good philosophy. What I want to do is clarify what literal isn't, right? Um... It isn't an actual word-for-word recording, step-by-step recording. This isn't like a camera following the life of Jesus. First of all, wouldn't the Gospels be the most strange telling of human interaction ever if this was a literal word-for-word telling of the Son of God? I I mean, think about this. Think about this. Um, There is no laughter. There's no laughter. There's no what's part of me is. Can you say that again? No ums, no pauses, no. This is completely unnatural, right? It's very clear that what we're reading is somewhat polished. Uh, for example, in the, in the parables, we don't read a single offhand comment from Jesus. That is not normal storytelling. Good storytellers, yes, they stick to their story, but they also acknowledge where they are and sometimes throw in that little local bit which engages the audience, right? We just don't see natural accounts like that. That's not to say none of this happened. It happened. But the gospel writers are putting this in a publishable, readable way that the church can read for years and years and years and years. They are seeking to preserve what happened to Jesus. So when we say literal, please do not think that we mean a word-for-word account. We just mean that we should take what is there in the gospel as it really happened. Maybe not those exact words, but the meaning is definitely there, right? I mean, are we saying that they got every single and that Jesus said, right? That's, that's just ridiculous. That's, that wouldn't help anybody to know that that's exactly preserved that way or not. So, um, literal. Yeah, that's, we need to step back a little bit by when we say literal, what do we mean? We just mean, do we take this as it happened? And I say, yes, yes, we do. Now, Jesus spoke in Aramaic. He spoke in Aramaic. The Gospels were first written in Greek. We read in English. I hope you catch what I'm getting at. First of all, the gospel, the original writings of the gospels themselves were not technically literal in the sense of every exact word because they were translating from the beginning. The gospel writers were not writing in the language Jesus spoke. They were translating his words to the Greek text. And then we're translating the Greek text to English. But so even as far back as the original writers, we have translating happening. 
You may never have thought of this before, but I'll show you that it's true. If you look in Mark's gospel, there are three instances where Mark preserves the actual Aramaic phrases of Jesus. That's cool, because that's where you have the actual literal words of Jesus, right? The Aramaic. Which, by the way, is cool. Just side note, that if Paul or Peter indeed helped Mark write his gospel... Peter's the one who's inserting those words because he can still remember the tone of Jesus' voice. I just think that is so cool. There's such a personal touch in Mark's gospel. So Mark 5, verse 41, for example, it says, this is Jesus raising the young, the little girl who um, he said was asleep. Everyone thought she was dead, right? He takes her by the hand, 541, takes her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumi. Okay, that's Aramaic, Talitha Kumi. Now Mark and Peter are translating into the Greek, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Okay? There's a second one in Mark chapter 7, verse 34. And looking up to heaven, Jesus sighed and said to the blind man, Ephatha, Ephatha, that's Aramaic. Then Mark says in Greek, that is, be opened. And then one more, and this one is well known. I'm sure most of you can actually just recite this one. On the cross, Mark fifteen thirty four, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That's the Aramaic that Mark says, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we need to understand what we mean when we say literal. Um, we cannot have, as far as translate, we can be as close as we can to Jesus as far as translating Aramaic to Greek goes. But we have to realize that right there, from the get-go, we have a translation in progress. Um, and then finally, I want us to consider this the four-step process of the Gospels, right? The Gospels were not written as things were happening. It's not like Matthew knew he was going to make a Gospel, and so while Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, he's writing that down just as it is in our Bible. Now, truly, Matthew probably did take notes. He was a tax collector, after all, and knew how to take um, exact accounting. He was probably the note-taker of the group who took you know, short notes, uh, just reflection points. So this, and this, by the way, was common. After a rabbi would teach, the disciples would get together and discuss the lesson. So Matthew may have kept notes for talking points, and then they would reinforce the lesson by discussing it among themselves, which would also help them remember what he said, right? So, um, so remembering the four-step process, um, that they're not writing the Gospels as we have them as they're happening. These are products uh, a couple decades later. So, were the exact, every exact word, was that all preserved and passed down exactly intact? Probably not. Probably what was preserved, though, was the precise meaning of Jesus' words. And that, my friends, is what counts, the meaning of his words. 
What we have in the Gospels is history remembered and retold. Remembered because, well, it happened then, and we got to recall what happened because we didn't write down the Gospels at that moment, and retold because we are also helping the church know how to live the life of Jesus by telling the life of Jesus. So we are telling his story in a way that's helpful for the church to read. And this is a good thing. This is what differentiates the Gospels from a mere newspaper article. Think about that. What if we have the life of Jesus in the New York Times? Okay, so we have a great journalist who was there on the scene, wrote everything down as it happened, period. That's the end. What would you have at the end of the day? All we would have is a mere historical record of what happened. But that's not the most important thing in the Bible. The Bible is about communicating the heart of God to us in the present. Using things that happened in the past to speak to us in the present. That's a prophetic voice of scripture. And it's speaking always. So we read the word of God. The words that are there that recall everything that actually happened. Literal events. We read the word of God to hear the voice of God. You don't hear the voice of God in a newspaper article. You hear the voice of God in the Bible because the authors knew that they wanted to spread a message down generation after generation. So no, the Gospels are not newspaper accounts detailing everything exactly. They're about getting to the heart of who Jesus was so that we can be like him. And that, this, this entire episode, the reason I love this stuff is because knowing all this gives me a deeper purpose and passion when I open the Gospels. Like I said when I started, I used to just open them and think, well, this is getting repetitive. Not anymore. Every little paragraph, every little episode of each gospel to me now has the potential to speak on its own terms. And friends, this is where we need to let the gospels read us. We have for far too long tried to read the gospels, figure them out. You know, answer all the, the skeptics who say, oh, that can't be literal. Well, we got our answers. And no, no, no. We, you know what? We've heard the process, how these things came about. If we believe the Bible's inspired, then we believe that God inspired the process by which it came to us. And now we can sit, read it, and listen. Let the gospel speak. Let the Son of God on those pages and in those accounts speak, not just what he said to Jews back then. Well, that's an easy out. Read the Bible safe. Just pretend this is only something he spoke to them. But you want to read the Bible in a dangerous setting that might call you on an adventure, might kill a part of you, might resurrect a new part of you, might send you out on the road of service. You want to read it that way? You let it read you. You let it speak. And knowing that the four Gospels have different approaches and different methods and different purposes Knowing that what they captured was the meaning and the heart of Jesus, this causes me to enter into the Gospels reading it for that. Not, did this happen, but what does this mean? 
not, well, to what degree of literal is this, but is this true? Yes, it happened. So what's the meaning? And yes, it's true. So how can I let it shape my life? I love, 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 love the Gospels. Favorite, 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 enough superlatives, part of the Bible. And I love teaching them. So, um, I know, it's kind of a crash course. Just kind of going real in depth here all, like, all at once. And my notes, honestly, it's just a, like, it's just half of an eight and a half by eleven with some scribbles on it. So, um, I, I apologize if it uh, wasn't as clear as I hope, but, um, I wanted to get something out to you guys this week. So I hope that you found this interesting, that it was enriching. And if there's anything you were confused by or need more follow-up on, believe me, we can do more. So you can always hit me up, um, ask your own questions for future episodes. My email is brandonmcculloch at calvarychapel.com. B-R-A-N-D-O-N-M-C-C-U-L-L-O-C-H at calvarychapel.com. And Calvary is spelled with two A's, no E. So, we go to the Book of Kings next. I hope you guys enjoy reading along in Scripture with us. I hope you dig into the Gospels this week and just get richly blessed by them. I hope that your uh, respect for God's Word has increased This is Pastor Brandon with grace and gratitude. I thank you for listening.